Rodney. It's happening. Subconscious man. Mm. Really been very much focusing on what I'm feeding my subconscious first thing in the morning and mm. last thing at night. And it has radically shifted my mindset and my ability to execute and get things done. And so I just want to say, this is one that I want everybody to buy. I want everybody to buy into waking up and saying wonderful, amazing things about yourself. And before you go to bed, say those same wonderful, amazing things about yourself until, and keep doing it until you believe them and then keep doing it beyond that. Don't stop. Mm. I love that. Always remember the labels that you give yourself aren't who you are, but they will become who you are if you continue to say them. Mm. That's how the subconscious works. So, yeah. Welcome back to the More in Common podcast. I am your co-host, Keith, with my man, Rodney. Rodney, how are you today? I'm excellent, sir. How are you? Oh, doing well. A little back pain, So I want to talk well. to you about compassion. And when I say you, I mean you, Keith, and I mean you, listener to this episode. We'll talk about compassion. Compassion is living, loving, and loving, living, and meeting people where they are and realizing that just like it took you a long time to get something, it might take the person you're talking to time to get something and you can still love them where they are. That is compassion. And we are on a mission to drive productive human connection by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. And today we have an amazing conversation with Felipe Blue. Keith, what, what do we get into? Yeah, I mean, Felipe is the embodiment of what it means to deliver on compassion we talk about meeting people where they are and actually living that right like his journey in living that being called the n-word and still being a therapist for those people being spit on and still being a therapist for those people we talk about the importance of eye contact in conversation and what it means in the depths of how felipe leverages it to draw connections and we talk about a lot of stuff and we get into jim crow a little bit as well does the Hippocratic Oath apply to psychiatrists? Yeah, because they're doctors. They prescribe medicine. Yeah. And psychologists? No. They have a different... I, I just... Uh, different talking way. to him, it, it he has this very much like do no harm kind of mm -hmm. uh, an approach. Yeah. Um, I'm here to serve. And he... You know, if you're wondering why to listen to this, I would say if you want to understand the application of turning the other cheek that this is your episode. And uh, if you want to learn some history of this country uh, by somebody who, who gets it deeply, who's lived in the South, who lives in the South and, and understands some things, that's what you're going to get out of this. That's right. And if you want to know anything else about More In Common, if it's your first time here or you've been with us all the way, you can go to moreincommonent.com and you can find everything there, including about our consulting practice. That is right. We are helping organizations drive productive connections by anchoring humanity and compassionate conversation. And if your organization or an organization that you are aware of could use some culture shift, could use some better morale, could use getting rid of a toxic culture 
hit us up. Now on to the show. I meet people where they are. I know that a lot of times hate is something that you learn. I remember when I was younger and I had a friend named Toby and he was a a Caucasian male. We were the best friends until we got to high school when things changed because I went to basically an all African-American school and his mother didn't want him going to that school. So then, you know, he started associating with people that look like him more. I started associating with people who look like me more. And though we lived maybe four houses apart, you know, saying our friendship changed. All right, today we are with Felipe Blue. He is more than therapy's founder, lead therapist, and award-winning author. Felipe helps families, couples, and individuals navigate the stages of their life by providing necessary coping skills for their emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being. He also provides mental health and addictions therapy, family therapy, individual therapy, life coaching, peer support, supervision, and consultations. And when he is not attending to his or others' mental health, he is a writer, producer, and songwriter, poet, photographer, videographer, graphic artist, and more. He does a lot, and he is awesome. Felipe, welcome to the show, my man. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Excited to excited to have you. As we like to do with every guest, as you said in the run-up, eye contact as your tip for navigating difficult conversations. What is it about eye contact that you find to be valuable in navigating difficult conversations? I find that eye contact shows attention. If your eyes divert, for instance, you might be distracted or feeling anxiety. If you look down a lot, you might be focusing more, but you also might be nervous or upset. Eye contact tells me whether or not to keep going or to peel back a little bit, you know what I'm saying? Your eyes are a window to your soul. They pretty much tell you everything, what's going on. I wear glasses, so sometimes lights reflect off my um things. So I, sometimes people can't gauge my eyes, but if they were able to see my eyes, they would be able to tell, you know, the interest level, whether or not I'm uncomfortable, whether or not I'm very interested. You know, the bigger they are, the more excited I am. The smaller they are, the more intent on thought I might be. I think the eyes will just tell a lie. I think the eyes is one of the best nonverbals that we have. That's such a good, man, that's, so, that's such good thought and detail on that. That's the first time we've actually received that answer, and uh, I really like it. I think that's one of the things that makes this hard, like doing the video thing versus getting to sit in a circle and actually have this conversation. But uh, thank you for that. It's one of the things that, as everybody gets so excited about virtual work and you, I mean, you're even putting out like post COVID, what can you do in virtual world to maintain connection, maintain happiness? And I think there is an over index on the productivity of this remoteness because you don't get to make eye contact. Like I'm staring at a, a camera right now just to look like I'm staring at you. Right. And then you're looking at me, but I can't see you looking at me. So it's, it is, I think, one of the biggest missing pieces of this virtual connection that you cannot replace. But yeah, so do you do you find it, because I actually find it difficult to maintain eye contact. Do you find it difficult to maintain eye contact? When I was younger, maybe more unsure of myself, had some doubt within myself, I think that eye contact might have been more difficult, especially as I had imposter syndrome regarding my role as a therapist in America. 
I think I might have had more difficulty with eye contact. I felt that as I became more sure of myself, as I became more confident in my abilities and the contributions I bring to this world, I think eye contact is easier for me. And not only that, I think it really cements that connection that if I'm not as intent on you, then I might not be making eye contact. Then I might not be as focused on what you're saying or what you're doing or what you need and what I'm to receive. If somebody refuses to make eye contact, like say, or like say they're not making eye contact, whether it's, it's hard for them or they're just not engaged. What do you, how do you respond? Like, what does that do to you as a communicator when, when you see that? I don't have a problem with it because I suffered with the same behaviors through much of my life, you know? So I understand, you know, not being able to make eye contact, not maybe not trusting or not as quick to make a rapport with somebody through making eye contact. And then we got to think of cultural norms. Some cultural norms feel like respect is not making eye contact. So just being, you know, keen on that. So I don't have a problem with those who do not. It's just, it's not even important so much that I do, but I try to maintain it so that you know that I am, especially if that speaks to your culture and how you deal with people. I want people to be the most comfortable they are or want to be or can be. And if it means that they don't have to look at me to say their story, then fine, please tell your story any way you want to. If you want to turn your chair all the way around, you know, whatever works for you. You said you used to experience that personally. Yeah. Does it, does it have to do with confidence? Like what's the, what was the shift for you into more eye contact or what is, I think it was multiple things. Um, I come from a culture in which we don't, we, we probably didn't make eye contact with those we saw as superior to our um, others. As I threw off those shackles of believing and thinking, then I became more in tune and I'm just as good as you are, if not more. So, you know what I'm saying? Who are you to have to, I bow down to you by not looking you in your eye. So I think it was a lot of it was just shaking off some of the cultural norms that was infused in me. And then, you know, just becoming more confident in myself, more confident in the things that I'm doing. But I think more than more, more than anything, it was just shaking off cultural norms that were not benefiting me. As I was raised, I was raised mainly in the South, mainly in a Jim Crow type South. Mm. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna put a pin right in that for the audience. How long did it take you to get get to a place of comfort with yourself so that eye contact became a natural thing? I was think maybe after I started getting more concrete and doing the things that I'm doing in the community, I'm deemed one of the most uh, I'm deemed a highly effective therapist. I'm highly recognized in my field in North Carolina. I think with that confidence, with that acknowledgement. I had to become that person that was more confident regarding such things. I think, you know, also going to therapy, shaking off some of, like I said, some of the cultural norms that might have at one time defined me or I thought defined me was helpful. Understanding that, can I really, really make a connection with you if I'm not seeing you? You know, if I'm looking away, if I'm diverted, am I showing you that I'm paying attention? That may show you a sign that I'm not connected to you. That's good. That's gold. It is the first time we've gotten that. And I think, um, it is an underappreciated facet of human connection in this digital world that we don't talk enough about. So I'm, I'm super glad that you mentioned it. Now, you did throw out there, as you talked about being one of the most recognized in Durham, North Carolina, in your field, having to battle imposter syndrome. 
Yeah. Uh, so let's go back to that pen real quick, Keith. Felipe, you said you, you mentioned the cultural aspects of eye contact, and then you mentioned Jim Crow South, which very direct connection for me, but I don't know that everybody else would make that connection. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. My grandmother, my paternal and maternal families, when they came from Haiti, they pretty much settled in this place called Dillon, South Carolina. Dillon is on the border of North Carolina and South Carolina. So they assimilated into how the other Africans or African-descended people were, basically becoming sharecroppers, working land that belonged to somebody else, but you was able to till it, make some profit off it. They was the towns were very separate. There was Newtown and there was regular Dillon and there was, you know, African-Americans or those from African descent worked for in many aspects for, you know, the Caucasians, the whites. I remember my grandmother. She was a um, when I was around maybe early teens, she worked for a person who she cleaned and, you know, took care of the, the lady of the house who was ill. I remember her interactions with the the male, the, the, how she would hold her head down and talk slow or talk low and not even use the words that she would use that were more powerful in our household when she came home and prepared dinner for my grandfather and us. I remember how strong she was in the household, but how weak she was in their presence. I remember them telling us not to go to certain stores. And we being from Charleston was like, there's nowhere we can't go. But in Dillon, South Carolina, they were still very, very segregated. So there was plenty of places we're not supposed to go. And people from Charleston that went there, which wasn't often the case, I'm sure, but we stayed with our grandparents in the summertime. Boom, you know what I'm saying? So we saw the, di- the distinct differences between a covert racist system and an overt racist system. So in the summer, winter breaks, boom, racism. We see it right there in our face. Uh, in the school time periods, we don't see it as much, but we can feel it. Yeah. Did Charleston have any parts that were like sundownish? Or was that just when you went to visit them? Just Dillon. Um, Charleston's a major metropolitan, so a lot of those things did not exist. You know, at that time, they had the naval shipyard, so they had a lot of different races in that city at that time. Downtown was cons- Rainbow Row, maybe to some degree that you're not supposed to really be on that side of town or on the battery after a certain time. But you wasn't going to get arrested or beat up or anything normally, so I would say not as much. It wasn't as defined. You didn't really see a lot of interactions. There was a lot of segregation as the school I went to might have had a classroom full of Caucasians. Um, They usually went to their private schools or the charter schools where the blacks was like uh, they couldn't afford or they weren't eligible for not knowing that charter schools are heavily funded by the government. Private schools can be, you know, substituted in some way funding so you can go to those. But we're not taught that our cultural norms doesn't teach us that. Keith, are you familiar with the term sundown town? I think you probably are. Well done, sir. My next question was going to be, can you explain the term sundownish? Because I've actually never heard it before. Sundown is basically African-Americans were not to be within city limits after sundown. So if the sun went down at 6.01 p.m., if you're caught, you're going to get harassed, beat, or killed. And there's this ledger, like a magazine that they put out within African-American communities that would tell you the cities that were safe for tr- safe travel and the yeah. ones that had sundown clauses. Funny thing is, there's still many states in America that have that. We may not know of yep. them because they're smaller, smaller towns with populations of four or 500 people, but they do exist in 2021. When you talk about the Jim Crow, like, obviously, 
your grandparents and the structural ecosystem of Jim Crow was very real during that time. From your experience, what are the remnants of that today in the places that you both live, work, travel in North Carolina? It doesn't particularly affect where I work at now, but I used to work in a rural community called Roxboro, North Carolina. And it was very, very, very impactful in those areas as there was distinct rules in, w- in ways you wish you interacted with people. You know what I'm saying? They were out racist, out in front, you know what I'm saying? But still needed mental health stability and help. You know what I'm saying? So it was kind of crazy. It's like I'm serving you in a mental health capacity, but you're spitting on me and calling me the N-word, especially as I was a mobile crisis worker. So sometimes it wasn't that they came to my agency to get help. It was they were having a significant crisis in the hospital or had to meet them at the hospital to do an assessment or the doctor or a police officer called me out to do an assessment to see whether or not they need to be transitioned to an inpatient facility. So it was very, very evident now. Now I work in a major city, so I don't see any remnants of it at all, with the exception of the legal system, the judges, and some housing districts, some housing areas, especially as we gentrify. How do you reconcile that that you just shared, like treating someone who's who's spitting on you, calling you a nigger? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Or do you reconcile that? I meet people where they are. I know that a lot of times hate is something that you learn. I remember when I was younger and I had a friend named Toby and he was a a Caucasian male. We were the best friends until we got to high school when things changed because I went to basically an all African-American school and his mother didn't want him going to that school. So then, you know, he started associating with people that look like him more. I started associating with people who look like me more. And though we lived maybe four houses apart, you know what I'm saying? Our friendship changed. I remember my sister still saying, oh, I'm still going to hang with who I hang with and be and do what I want to do. She loved rock and roll music. She loved heavy metal. She Skid Row is her favorite group, even to this day. I remember her being penalized by her own people because of her preferences for, you know, th- that particular culture or that particular music preferences. I reconcile it by just being the best me I can be anyway. And if you don't change or if you don't change your mind, then that's on you. The funny thing is the people that were in long-term treatment did change. The people that they might have interacted with or media might have influenced the way they thought may paint us in a particular way. I try to make sure that I'm the best me regardless of color. You know what I'm saying? Regardless of what you think of me. I'm not going to... You could call me the N-word all day. You can spit on me. Well, you're not going to spit on me. You're not going to do that. You could do whatever you want to do and say whatever you want to say. I'm still going to do the best I can to help you because I want to be what I would want to receive. And I may have, I might have been in a situation in which I wasn't my best me because of prejudices or a a certain way of thinking. You know what I'm saying? I have to remember that we all might find ourselves in a situation in which we're not our best selves. But I always want to be the best me I can be. Because if the situation was reversed, I wouldn't want you to treat me a certain way. We could have a three-hour conversation on that response you just gave. Yeah. Like that was... (laughs) Yes. Um... (laughs) The concept. It's That's the one thing I can't tolerate. That spitting thing. Now that don't, that it's yeah. like a it's like a blackout. That crosses a physical line. Yeah, words you can do all you want, but yeah, space. those physical things like spitting. Well, but I think that's an important distinction because somebody can call you a nigger, but you get to decide how you internalize that, whether you give it your day, right? 
in your energy right. versus somebody's pushing you, hitting you, spitting you. Like that's different. They've entered your physical space. Right. I can take a push. I can take a hit. I just can't take spit. <laughs> that's a, that, that's a whole nother level of disrespect. <laughs> Especially if you, you if you rev it up and you get that that lug in it, oh my goodness, we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna fight. <laughs> so I mean, you say something in that like that meet people where they are is a core tenant of what Rodney and I teach is teaching people how to meet people where they are. It's the first. It's the first it piece. Is the first piece. Like from your perspective, what does meeting people where they are look like, and how do you channel it, even in the hardest of times? To me, it's just like not putting myself on a pedestal when I meet with you or in my regards to you. You know what I'm saying? Not saying I'm going to dumb myself down, not saying I'm going to act like you, but allowing you to be who you are at your stage of change or at your stage of being and accepting you at that, speaking to you at that, never speaking down on you, never using my cultural inferences to influence you, letting you know the benefits of it, but letting the motivation lie within you. And just doing it slowly. I mean, say it's it's uh what they say it's a uh, a marathon, not a sprint. We'll work together. And if you're not motivated, I would try to instill the seeds for change. And I, you know, and a lot of times I do see those changes. I do see the, them change. I do see the manifestations of becoming a better them through time. You gotta think. It's like they want the service I do. They consider it cognitive brief therapy. But, you know, we have to zoom out a little bit. It took them 25, 35, 45 years to become the person that they are now. Six months into a year is not going to make that light switch to what we would want them to be, which we call the word I don't like to use, normal. I just got this flash between the last response and this response. I got this flash of the movie Inception. And instead of Leo DiCaprio, it's Felipe. <laughs> and it's just like him being a good dude and like just showing up and being that person that he wants to be, which plants those little seeds, which people water or not. Yeah, it's it's interesting when it comes to this this concept that we have the tendency, especially now in the time of I want to change your mind. And it's very much a predominant layer in our interpersonal discourse you think the way you think i don't agree with it so i need to get you to think the way i think but it's gonna it's not even just that it's also it's gonna happen in this conversation right like this one moment because what we don't give credence to is the fact that of all of the moments i have you have all those moments in your own parallel life existence but when we meet we treat the other person as if that's their entire existence because it is in our world. And we're you not need to get this thing that took me 10 years. You need to get it right now. Absolutely. And so I love that you said that. I think it's, it is needed so much, just this frame of meeting people where they are, especially when you consider everything that is happening. It's so easy. God, is it easy to go, why don't you get this? Like, it is just, it is so default easy. When someone's calling you the N-word to just go, fuck them. Like, and can you blame most people, right? Like, can't blame them. It's not going to change anything. But at the same time, I don't blame them. And we will pause right there. As we continue this conversation in a couple of days with Felipe, you know what? 
In the meantime, you can give us a like, you can share, you can leave us a comment, and heck, you can reach out to us and tell us what you like or don't like, and we can continue to improve the show for you. So tune in in a couple of days. We'll have part two. Hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you.